us in prayer as we come to the scriptures together. Father, thank you for your words for us as we've sung. Thank you that the Psalms help us to know how to speak to you. Thank you that these are also your words to us, that we're hearing your voice addressed to us to help us, to help us to know you better. And we pray that that's what would happen over these next few minutes. We pray with David in Psalm 19 that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I hope you don't mind if I start by asking you a slightly personal question. What do you fear? I think I need to ask you that question because Psalm 46 is all about dependence on God, trust in God, but the way that it approaches that issue is by imagining the most scary and chaotic situation that it can think of. We heard it, didn't we? Verse 2, we said it. The earth giving way, mountains falling into the heart of the sea, waters roaring and foaming, mountains quaking. Or verse 6, nations in uproar, kingdoms falling. The psalm's way into thinking about trust in God is to call to mind scary things. So what do you fear? As we've said, we're spending this term listening to and speaking with, singing with the book of Psalms. And the Psalms are very graphic about the fact that there is quite a lot of stuff in this world that we could very legitimately be afraid of. In here, we've got war and violence, lots of violence, depression, spiritual depression, spiritual isolation, betrayal, grief and loss. And it goes on and on and on. In fact, Um, Just as I was looking through the Psalms this week, I noticed in Psalm uh, 41, even the danger of kind of misinformation and fake news and echo chambers is there. Uh, Psalm 41 verse 7 says, all my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying a vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. It's full of bad and scary stuff and exactly the kind of stuff that we don't like and we wish wasn't in the world. And you read about all of that and you've got to ask the question, where does this come from? How, how can all of this stuff be in the world? Especially if, as the Psalms insist, there is a God who is absolutely good and whose love endures forever. And a God who is infinitely powerful. We saw a couple of weeks ago in, in Psalm 2 that God has installed his king who will rule over everything. So if he's absolutely good and he's infinitely powerful, that all of that is right, why all of this bad stuff that there is in the world and in the Psalms? We saw a couple of weeks ago, right from the very start of this book, the Psalms tell the story of a conflict in our world. We heard Psalm 2 ask, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So the Psalms introduced us to a conflict between human beings and our maker. We've gone to war against our maker as a human race. We've said, we don't want him. We want to be in charge. It's a war that humans can't hope to win. We heard the Lord laugh with a kind of holy scorn at the very thought of it. But it's what's happening. It's a fundamental conflict in our world. Human beings resisting their God. And the thing about conflicts, the thing about all conflicts, is that they leave mess 
in their wake, don't they? I mean, think of it like any conflict of any scale, from, from something as trivial as a pillow fight or something, it leaves a mess in its wake, all the way up the scale to the major conflicts in our world, Ukraine, as we've heard about. In the wake of that conflict, total chaos. I looked up this week, actually, kind of pictures of bombed cities um, in Ukraine. But I actually thought probably there's just too harrowing to be fair to show them, really. You see photos of people's homes and kids' playgrounds and office blocks that are just kind of reduced to one standing wall or a crater. Scarred landscape, the whole infrastructure of the place kind of creaking. And it's a horrible thing, and it's an example of what happens in our world. Conflict being waged against God has led to a world full of chaos and full of all of the things that we fear. Actually, that's the story that the opening, of the opening part of the Bible tells. The first few chapters of Genesis tell us about a good world, and then the first human beings decided, no, actually, we, we don't want God telling us what to do. He probably doesn't have our best interests at heart anyway. Let's throw off his chains. Conflict began, and as a result, rubble and chaos. Relationships between people and God broke down. Relationships between people and people broke down. Relationships between people and the earth itself broke down. Dragged down by, by the mess of it all. So that's a, a bit of where we are um, in the story of the world and the story of the Bible and the story of the Psalms. And so the question is, how are... It's a question, actually, that everybody's got to answer. How are we going to deal with a world like this? How are we going to live well in a world like this? Given... The things that I fear, they exist. Given those things, how can I do life? It's a question that everybody's got to answer, isn't it? And I, I guess the most common way of answering that question is some form of suppress or ignore the bad things. Don't, don't think about the negative stuff too much. It'll only drag you down. Positive vibes only. Um, block the haters, all of that. Um, ignore it. Psalm 46 seems to say that there is a way of looking directly at the worst that could happen. Earth gives way, mountains fall into the sea, looking directly at that stuff and yet saying, we will not fear. Not pretending, not sugarcoating, not escaping, but also not scared. Now, if that possibility exists, if, if, if there's a way that that could be my approach to life, I want that. Don't you? able to look at the worst that could happen and say, we will not fear. So let's listen to the sons of Korah, these ancient songwriters, and see how the world looks to them. We don't know very much about the sons of Korah. We don't know quite when or why um, they wrote this song, Psalm 46. But we do know that when the Psalms were all brought together into um, the form we've got them now, the, the people of God, the people of Israel, had returned from exile in Babylon, and there they were surrounded by rubble, surrounded by the rubble of Jerusalem. Everything was chaos, nothing was stable, and yet they decided they were going to keep a hold of this psalm that said, we will not fear. And they put the psalm in book two. Remember we said there's, there's five books to the psalms, and between them they, they tell this great story. This psalm got put in book two, in which there is a kind of gathering sense of dread, God, he's, he's, he's got his king, King David, 
but it's increasingly not looking like King David is going to be quite enough. His, his enemies are looking too strong for him. He is looking quite weak. Gathering sense of dread. And then book three, exile is, is top of the agenda. Israel's invaded and destroyed. And yet here, among a book full of gathering sense of dread, Psalm 46, we are to sing about how we won't fear. How? Well, as we said, um, we already talked about that they're not afraid to look directly at the world and at all of its chaos. Verse 2 and 3, if you have a look down at 2 and 3, um, you can see chaos in the natural world. Verse 6, you can see chaos among people. So if you want to think of it in geography categories, we've got the physical and the human uh, problems here. And they add up to a general vibe of instability. Verse 2 says, let's imagine the most secure, solid things that we can think of collapsing. Mountains falling into the sea. Imagine that. Many of us um, were away at the end of last term on our student getaway at Ledbury. And we went for um, a beautiful walk on the Mulvern Hills. I don't know if you were, if you were there, you remember. It's a sort of ridge of hills. And they're amazing. They're beautiful views for miles either side. And... Um, one person who's at Lebri, who will remain nameless, um, suggested it might be a good idea to bulldoze the Malvern Hills and uh, turn them into extra housing um, or a car park or something, which I thought was very funny. Um, why was that funny? It's funny because what could be more stable than, than the hills? Obviously, you're not going to bulldoze it for the sake of a car park. It can't be done. They're hills. They just are. They're just there. And Psalm 46 says, well, just imagine they weren't. Imagine the Malvern Hills disintegrate. We're not worried. In fact, um, the whole of these two verses, verse 2 and 3, are a picture of creation unraveling. One of the ways that the Bible speaks about how God created the world was separating out land from sea. And yet this is envisaging that process being reversed. The world itself decaying, collapsing. Which is quite a contemporary fear, isn't it? Perhaps when I ask the question, what do you fear? The stuff that came to your mind was stuff to do with the world itself decaying, environment-related problems and, and, and fears. David Attenborough said a couple of years ago, if we continue on our current path, we will face the collapse of everything that gives us our security. The sons of Korah had already faced down a possibility similar to that. And their response to it is not, ah, it's fine, it's fine, don't worry. Don't worry about all of that stuff. Deny, deny. Their response is, even so, even if it happens, we will not fear. In other words, there is something that gives us our security that won't collapse, even if the mountains do. So there's the physical, verse 2 and 3. Then there's the human chaos of verse 6. Nations in uproar. Kingdoms fall. Literally, nations rage, which is exactly the language of Psalm 2. It's human war and strife. And perhaps this is what you fear. Maybe not conflicts between nations, although who knows. But strife in relationships. You'd be very normal, I think, if when I asked what you fear, the thing that came to mind was, I fear that this relationship won't work out or that that friendship won't get sorted out. The sons of Korah, they think of 
worst case scenario, physically and humanly, and it adds up to a world in which nothing seems quite reliable. It adds up to a sense that things could actually get really, really bad. And again, it's the world that we live in. I guess one of the reasons why exam season feels so stressful is that exams seem to offer you some of the things in life that feel reliable and secure. Jobs, money, careers. Oh, but what if they don't go very well? That's why, I guess, relationships that we thought might be heading somewhere and then fall apart are so painful because it feels like a whole version of our future has fallen apart. We're, we're desperate for something reliable, something fixed, something that's going to stay. Even on a kind of sort of cultural and philosophical level, we're living at the back end of three or four centuries of deconstruction and, and breaking down old things. And doubtless lots of that has been good, but if, if you only have deconstruction and breaking down walls, then what are you left with? You're left with rubble and mess. Yeah, we will not fear. The thing that means that we can look directly at those things and still not fear is that as God's people, God is with us. That is repeated throughout the psalm in different ways, isn't it? Verse 1, the Lord is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Verse 7, kind of chorus, kind of refrain to the psalm, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Verse 11, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is with us. And that's the kind of thing that Christians say a lot, isn't it? God is with us. And so you can kind of forget or, or lose a sense of the potency of that fact, of how extraordinary a thing it is that he's with us. Verse 1 says he's with us as a refuge and strength. Think about those two things. A refuge is defensive, isn't it? A refuge is a thing that keep thing, keeps things safe. So it means that things can still get at me, but they can't get me in an ultimate way. Strength is, is more dynamic, isn't it? The Lord is the one who gives me what I need to be able to keep on going day after day. By his presence, he enables us to keep going. At this point, actually, I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind flicking forward to the reading that Justin read for us from Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, which is uh, page 1006. And um, this is in a, a section of Mark, page 1006, Mark 4, a section of Mark that is full of hard and scary things. I've so just skim through these few chapters of Mark this week, and there's, there's fear of drowning, uh, there's fear of evil, fear of nature, sickness, poverty, social exclusion, powerlessness, reputation things. There's lots of stuff to be afraid of in, in, in this little section. But at the head of it is this famous story in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, where we have a storm. We have waters roaring and foaming surging and stuff like that. And the disciples experience fear. And yet, what changes things? What makes the difference? It's who's in the boat with them. 
Jesus wasn't afraid, and he expected them not to be either, because he ha- he's got the power to sort of get up and rebuke the storm as though it's a slightly badly behaved puppy. That's enough. Thank you. Stop now. Unbelievable power that Jesus has. And so his disciples' question in verse 41 wasn't, well, why did he let the storm go on for so long then, if he could just stop it like that? That wasn't what they were asking. Their question, verse 41, who is this? Who is he? The key thing isn't the storms that we face or the likelihood of capsize or anything like that. The key question is who is present with me? He's the firm place to stand. I know a few of you were um, here on Friday evening for uh, the Andrew Peterson concert, Christian uh, singer-songwriter who was here on Friday evening. And at one point he was talking about a time in his life where he was finding things very difficult and and scary, and he didn't know what God was doing and feeling very frustrated. Um, But the Lord reminded him, actually, I think it was using a a statue of Jesus depicted the night before he died. The Lord reminded him that he was with him, and he always had been. And he said he realized that God's presence is better than his provision. I love that. His presence is better than his provision. In other words, it is better that he should be with me than that he should give me the thing that I want him to give me. That has to be true, doesn't it? If Jesus is who he says he is. He is an ever-present help. And that's the key. But as we think about, okay, great, he's with me. What does that mean that he's with me? In what sense does that help me? And the rest of the psalm gives us a couple of things that his presence entails, which um, we're going to think about for our last few minutes. So come back to Psalm 46 with me. And uh, here's two things that his presence with us entails for us. First one, a stable home. Stable home. Looking at verse 4 to 7 here, that little section. Told that a, a key factor in resilience in young children is the stability of their home life. If there's something in life that they know is is not going to change and it's safe and it's home for them, that massively increases their ability to cope with all the things in life that are unstable. And what is true of children, I guess, is true of all of us. And you can see in these verses that there is a particular focus to the presence of God. He's ever-present with us, but verse 4 says that the place where God dwells is his city his holy place. Verse 5, he is within the city. The city will not fall. God will help the city. And in the Old Testament, um, that is Jerusalem, Israel's capital, and uh, the temple at the heart of it where God's presence is focused. And so in the first instance, God's promises of his presence are for those within Jerusalem. That's what it's saying to the original people singing this song. If you're in Jerusalem, if you're in the city, you're safe. And God is with you. Not going to fall. It's a promise that held for many, many generations. But not forever, as we've already said. By the time this psalm was put where it is, perhaps by the time this psalm was written, Jerusalem had fallen. It was destroyed by the Babylonian army, including the temple, destroyed and everybody who lived there carried away. The physical Jerusalem wasn't the permanently stable home for God's people, but actually it was never intended to be. It was the prototype 
of the heavenly Jerusalem, of its prototype of the city to which all of God's people belong, and we as the church are its representatives on earth. There's a stable home to which all of God's people belong, the true Jerusalem where God's presence is, and we as, as its members, as those who trust in him, as the church, are those who belong to that home. God is within us together. We, the church, will not fall. God will help us at break of day. God is with his people. He is with his church. Obviously, the church throughout the world and this particular uh, local church are buffeted and affected by all sorts of storms and we're compromised by all sorts of our own sins and yet we're still here. Church is still here thousands of years after this psalm was written. Stable. And it's in belonging to this city, this kingdom, that we find stability and security and a firm place to stand even when the earth gives way. And that's always been the case. Rodney Stark is a social historian who has written about the very early history of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And he says that um, it seems like one of the key reasons why the church grew so explosively um, in those early centuries is that when disasters happened, and they happened a lot, uh, plagues and wars and famines and whatnot, it was the Christians who supported each other and loved one another like nobody else did. They opened up their homes, they shared their stuff, and so that meant that they survived plagues better, um, and it meant that other people wanted to join because they saw a firm place to stand, a stable home, and uh, the people who were in it said, anybody can get in on this, actually, because it's founded on a God who welcomes. And that continues. Firm place to stand then, firm place to stand now. Um, In our previous church, um, during the various... COVID lockdowns and stuff. It was a beautiful thing to see how elderly people were cared for. People, endless kind of shopping trips and people cycling halfway across London for a 10-minute conversation through someone's front window with someone who was lonely. Beautiful thing. Even here at St. Ebbs, we've heard already from one of our Ukrainian sisters and brothers who found a home here, even as they've had to flee their home. Here at the 11.45, somebody said to me the other day that she loves being a part of this congregation because if she's missing for a a Sunday or a couple of Sundays, she will always hear from friends and stuff texting, just check check she was all right, say that she was missed. It's a beautiful thing. It's a stable home to belong to. God is with us, and he makes us stable together. He brings us, as we've sung, into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he gives us membership of his church as a family and a community and an identity that holds even in storms. So we know his presence as we know it together. And then lastly, stable home, verse 8 to 11, an approaching peace. This is the other thing that God being with us entails, an approaching peace. The psalm ends with what I think is an even better promise than that God is with us in the mess. It ends with the promise that one day the mess will end. One day the conflict that causes the mess will end. And there'll be peace. Verse 8, I think, is speaking about the final judgment of God. He makes war... Sorry, verse... uh, I do mean verse 8. The final judgment of God. Come and see what the Lord has done. 
the desolations he has brought on the earth. Slightly uncomfortable language, isn't it, when you first read it? The thought of God bringing desolations on the earth. But again, it's, it's similar language to what we've seen in Psalm 2. Those who rise up against God and say, we don't, we don't want him, we'd rather run our own, our own world, they are warned by God that that is not a good idea. Given every opportunity to lay down arms and to recognize God and his king. But in the end, the war will come to an end. And God's anointed king, Jesus, will return and triumph. And that will mean judgment. All rebellion against him will be brought to an end. The ends of the earth will be made his possession and the nations his inheritance. And once that ultimate war, the one between God and human beings, once that ultimate war is brought to an end, then every other war will cease too because they're ultimately a, a result of this one. All of the other wars will stop as well. Verse 9, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. That is quite a promise to hear after we heard Luther's story, isn't it? Wars will cease and weaponry will not be needed anymore be got rid of and then in verse 10 God speaks for the first time in the psalm be still and know that I am God I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted in the earth as he says that he's got I think two different audiences in mind in the first instance he is speaking to the evil and to the chaos in the world. Just like Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves. And he's saying, be still. Enough. I am God. All arguments about that are ceasing now. It's a, a, a word of rebuke. And so the day is coming when God will say to everything that you fear, be still. Enough. No more. But then, therefore, these same words come to those who love him, those tempted to fear, and they say tenderly, be still. Know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'm not going to lose. And so you don't have to panic. You don't have to despair. You don't have to sort it all out. Be still. And know that I am God. Comes as a word of comfort. So what do you fear? There is a lot that you could. And I guess actually for quite a number of us uh, in this room at the moment, it might be stuff connected to exams, questions about our future, all of that stuff. Even if the worst should happen, even if your equivalent of the mountains fall into the sea, if that happens, even if you fail, even if life beyond Oxford is a nightmare, don't fear. He is your ever-present help in trouble. He is with you. Know his presence with you. Delight in the security of being one of his people. That'll be yours forever. And be still. And wait until the king comes again to end the struggle and to be exalted in all the earth. Let's pray for that day, shall we?
God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Father, thank you for your presence with us now. And thank you for your presence with us day by day, even as the risk of or the reality of mountains collapse around us. And we pray that you would help us so to know your presence and so to know your character and your goodness and care that on that day, when everything feels like it's collapsing, we won't fear and every day in between. In Jesus' name, amen.